Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Today, I'm joined by Zach Griffiths, our head of U.S. investment grade and macro strategy, Logan Miller, our head of European strategy, and then we have James Goldstein, Jim Dunn, and Dave Bussey, all of whom cover different segments of the consumer space, from retail to food and beverage to lodging and leisure and gaming. So I'm going to open it up with kind of a speed round question, and we'll start with James. So with earnings season winding down, although really for retailers, it's really just kind of winding up, what is your 2024 outlook for consumer spending in your sector? Do you think it's about the same or worse as in 2023 or actually better? Uh, I, I go towards the sort of same or slightly worse. I think we're starting to see increasing headwinds, the, the tone that's coming out of the names that supply the retailers. So we haven't had, like you said, we haven't had much retail action yet. We will in the next couple of weeks, but the names that supply into the retailers, we cover VF Corp, Mattel, and we also look at a couple other names that we don't cover, but names like Contour Brands and Crocs. The tone about the ordering behavior by the retailers seems increasingly cautious. The tone that we had out of the retailers coming out of second quarter, there was just uh, a lot of I think just general concerns about the consumer and the headwinds that the consumer is facing. And then generally the behavior that we're starting to see is much more that sort of economizing, you know, people look, looking to avoid bigger ticket purchases, um, looking to economize on their food shopping, you know, going to private labels, things like that, all feels a bit, bit, a bit tighter on the spending. So I'd say it feels like the headwinds are increasing. I think we were taking kind of the opposite view earlier in the year, you know, all the, the behavior that we were seeing out of the consumers felt pretty good, but I guess I'm naturally contrarian. And now that everyone says there's no recession coming, maybe there's, maybe there's more evidence that there is one coming. Awesome. How about for you, Jim? It's uh, a bit more cautious as well, and probably same to slightly worse with James. We haven't yet seen amongst branded food companies market trade down across the space although there's select pockets of weakness particularly amongst lower income shoppers that's been highlighted by more companies this time around out of the latest earnings compared to um, 2q earnings that's changing in shopping patterns so more towards bulk stores and discount stores and frequency and size of basket and then if you look at some companies that we cover that are more discretionary in nature. They do sort of echo the comments that James Goldstein pointed out. For example, Newell Brands, which reported a pretty nasty quarter last week, is seeing market share declines in category declines. So there's a seemingly a hangover effect from in categories that were popular during the pandemic that isn't necessarily correcting because consumers are becoming a little bit more cost conscious and selective of where they're spending money. Awesome. Dave, bring it home. Yeah. So for leisure, we generally expect spending to be roughly the same in 2024, maybe slightly worse. You know, the sector is certainly sensitive to macroeconomic conditions and they've started to lap 
periods of really strong leisure spending. That being said, from what we're seeing from you know the hotel side and the gaming side, consumer leisure demand has been really durable. So we'd characterize it as more normalized in 2024, not necessarily weakening. And one big supporting factor we look at unemployment rates, which you know, today are 3.9 percent, still healthy relative to you know past recessions, and still have a lot of room. And we also look at the preference for spending on continues to be for experiences and services. Um, and we really haven't seen any notable change in that so far. All right, so still experiences over stuff. So Jim, let's start with you in terms of earnings season top takeaways. What are kind of your big three lessons learned or key takeaways from any earnings season so far? One that I think is worth noting for the broader economic considerations is cost inflation considerations. Coming out of 2022, we were sort of at peak cost and input inflation madness. And there was an extreme lag with price increases that food manufacturers in particular were taking to offset those costs. We're going to lap the most significant price hike period in 4Q. And I think that could feed through to key metrics, um, key inflationary metrics for the broader economy. So we're, we're watching that. And the commentary coming out of the last quarter and, and actually the results pointed towards moderation in food inflation. Price increases have come down closer to mid single digits versus high single digits for a lot of companies in the second quarter. And we're also seeing examples of uh, volume and mix still declining despite pricing decelerating. So that points to increased consumer pushback on pricing and that would support you know, further moderation uh, on the price gain front. I mentioned trade down to private label. That's a key concern going into any downturn mindset. We haven't seen it to a degree that's significantly impacted brand food players, but it it, it is becoming an increasing promotional environment versus pandemic levels. For in a lot of instances, we're not back to the pre-pandemic promotion levels. And branded food companies did take a lot of market share during the pandemic. So there's a good cushion there. And I think that those are two key areas that we're watching. But in terms of, from a credit metrics perspective, balance sheets are mostly in good shape. Management teams have taken a more cautious approach to leverage metrics on average in the higher rate environment and are in relatively good position going into a more cost conscious environment. Awesome. Dave, how about for you? What are your kind of top three takeaways, especially after your massive earnings day yesterday? Yeah, you know, number one, which I mentioned, is leisure demand continues to be healthy. So, you know, for a lot of our names, the the key kind of buzzword was resilience when describing lodging and, and gaming demand. While the year-over-year comp has has definitely become more difficult, and we've also seen some shifts in in travel habits. For example, more flows from the U.S. consumer into international markets compared to domestic resorts. Uh, also, cruises picked up versus lower budget focused hotels, drive to hotels have struggled to, you know, outpace their difficult comp from 2022. Overall, consumer demand for leisure continues to look solid with no real notable indication of a pullback in leisure demand. We believe this is also supported by, you know, the healthy employment metrics that we're seeing in this ongoing shift for consumer spending on leisure versus goods. But another key takeaway that we saw is that there's still some room for recovery for large corporates and, and on the convention side. We've heard from a handful of names, both on the lodging and gaming side, that they expect to see you know, additional growth from, from large corporate business travel and, and group travel in 2024. In fact, Hilton 
was one of the names that, that specifically called out corporate group and business travel, where they expect to take a considerable leap into in 2024, helping close the gap in, in occupancy levels relative to 2019. We've been kind of stuck running at roughly 95% of 2019 levels throughout the year. Um, as leisure has come back and small and medium enterprises have also come back, large corporate is kind of part of that last piece to help improve occupancy rates. And also the other takeaway I note is cost pressures continue to be a, a theme in the sector, particularly on the, the labor side. This has mostly been the case with our casino operators and hotel owners. For example, Las Vegas casinos are, are currently in, in negotiations with the culinary union, Caesars on their Earnings call noted that they expect this to result in the largest wage increase their employees have seen in four decades. So the culinary union is currently targeting a strike date uh, a week from now. So we'll see if, if they um, you know, make any headway ahead of that. There's the F1 event in Las Vegas in uh, mid-November. So we think there will be motivation to get something done before that. But we expect to see an increase in wages there. Fortunately for the casino operators, margins are still um, have a significant cushion relative to pre-pandemic levels due in part to cost-cutting efforts during the pandemic. So there's still a nice cushion there, even if we do see increases on the labor front. All right. And James, I realize that retail earnings are just kind of getting going, but any early reads so far? Um, you know, like I said, I mean, most of what we're getting is kind of in the names that supply to the retailers and those just the tone about ordering and kind of retailer hesitance to take on inventory feels soft to us. The, the kind of flip side of that is that really what we want to see from retailers is, is tight inventory control because the lack of inventory control is what leads to the huge margin compression. So essentially you have that cycle where retailers end up with way too much inventory in a category, they slash prices to move that inventory. And that's what happened in a lot of these categories sort of late last, mid last year. And that was you know some of the earnings pain that we've seen in retail has been a result of that. So. From a demand perspective, it feels like there's going to be softness, but hopefully when we start to get these numbers flow through that there's some kind of margin benefit that, that the retailers are seeing from having a, a tighter control on those inventory levels. And we've definitely seen like, you know, if you look at, at retailers where they've kind of missed the boat on the inventory management, um, those are the ones that are suffering more than others. So we're definitely keeping a close eye on that inventory position. I think that's a great segue, James. I wanted to ask you about your outlook for holiday season and spending, it sounds like maybe looking for a little bit of demand softness, but as we are in November, I've already seen Christmas decorations up at lows. What are you expecting for the holiday season? Do we think it remains robust or are we gonna finally see a little bit of a slowdown after really robust spending that we've seen over the past couple of quarters? Yeah, I think, I mean, based on the kind of retail sales growth that we've seen recently, we're sort of running in the 3% year-over-year growth rate. Uh, National Retail Federation was out yesterday, I think, or maybe two days ago with their forecast, and they're calling for 3 to 4% growth for the holiday season as well. So it's kind of consistent with the, the trend that we've been seeing. Uh, as you note, I mean, we're coming off of two to three really good years of, of growth. So 2020, we had 9% growth. 2021, we had almost 13% growth. And 2022, we had about mid-5% growth. So the ability to pull off a 3 to 4% growth figure is respectable, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Obviously, some of that's going to be inflation driven, right? You've got some inflation kind of, you may not have unit growth, but you may get some growth just with inflation over the last year. But it definitely feels like it's a, a tapering situation, right? So it's not a not calling for a collapse, but some more normalization in growth. I mean, if you look at 2019, the holiday season grew 3.8%. So we're kind of getting back to 2019 levels, you know, kind of back to the, some normalization of, of the growth and, and getting past that 
unusual spur of spending that we had across the consumer uh, retail space during the pandemic. So I want to follow up with Jim and Dave on kind of that topic because, you know, we usually think of retail spending as the big holiday season driver. But as you have both noted, there's been a massive shift in spending to more experiences, restaurant sales, trips, entertainment, um, all of these things. Do you guys think that we will see more share of the consumer wallet heading to these more experiential things over the holiday season? Or how are you kind of thinking about the the mix going forward? Yeah, I can start there. Though we don't generally expect a notable shift in consumer spending on lodging during the holiday season. Historically, looking at lodging, revenue per available room, RevPAR, is the lowest during the holiday period, um, which partly reflects a slowdown in business travel, as well as time spent with families, you know, less time in hotels. We also recently heard from Host Hotels, who's a hotel owner with you know, meaningful exposure in, in U.S. resort properties, that revenues on the books for, for the Christmas holiday season is, is roughly flat year over year. Um, for gaming in, in the traditional casino side, we, we generally expect that to remain stable as well. We would note online sports books should benefit from not the holidays, but a nice you know offering of, of different sports betting opportunities on the NBA, NFL, and NHL. That said, overall, pretty, you know, pretty stable. We don't expect to see a, a meaningful shift during the holiday season, but I can kick it over to Jim to speak on you know, cruise sector and, and restaurants. Yeah, I think a couple things just to note from terms of what's going on with cruise is that the booking curve goes out to 2024 and remains strong and continues to build. So absolutely no indication of slowdown in cruise, both in terms of forward bookings and onboard spending. And that covers up and down income tiers. And then from a restaurant perspective, there has been an interesting development in a slowdown in casual dining, um, sort of to the benefit of fast casual and, and fast food broadly. Uh, that's been the only pocket of, of weakness that we've seen recently. And I think the expectations of that that's likely going to continue through year end. But that's more your uh, sort of middle bracket of restaurant categories. But in terms of any shift from away from ex experiences, it's not our expectation. In fact, coming out of the end of the summer, there was at least one food manufacturer that noted changing in, in shopping habits to continue to support spending on experiences. So we've seen it continue to disrupt other categories while consumers continue to prioritize spending on services and experiences. Thanks, guys. I want to follow up with a question from the audience on the gaming sector. Uh, the question is that Boyd Gaming and Caesars posted awful Q3 results. Are these idiosyncratic issues? How representative are they of leisure and the consumer more broadly? Yeah, it's a good question. So Boyd was the first to report. Um, they did see some softness in unrated play, which is essentially their non-core customers, um, customers that aren't on their loyalty-based program. A lot of that's been attributed to, you know, that excess savings from government stimulus starting to fall off. So there's been more volatility with unrated play. But on the positive side, their core customers continue to look strong across regions. They noted that they still don't really see a ton of softening. There's, you know, property softening in certain locations, partly due to competition. You know, we think partly the the reason that, you know, they had such a bad print in terms of stock performance that day was on the cost side where they saw higher labor costs and some impacts there. For Caesars, they also have a regional portfolio. Their regional portfolio looked pretty solid as well during that period. You know, 
again, unrated volatility from players that aren't in their loyalty program, but the core players continue to remain strong. And then Las Vegas had a record print, and we actually saw EBITDA beat the consensus estimate. So Vegas continues to look strong. They remain optimistic about the big events coming up in their pipeline, including F1 in a couple weeks, and then Super Bowl. We think there is this somewhat of a pressure from the ongoing negotiations with the culinary union and you know a potential expectation for a price raise there which could dig into margins but from a consumer standpoint we didn't see anything that would call out as you know being a flag for weakness most of it was resilience as well as really solid strong results in vegas thanks dave that's very helpful shifting gears a little bit back to the retailers, we have another question from the audience. James, how do you see high-end consumers and retailers behaving differently from the low-end over the next two years? I know two years is kind of a long way out, or maybe at least over the next 12 months based on what you're seeing in the sector now. Yeah, it's an interesting question because there's kind of a unique set of challenges and strengths for low-end consumer. I think low-end consumer in some ways, right, you've seen wage growth has been strongest at the low-end consumer. Um, if you look at like student loan repayment issues, it's least impactful probably for the low-end, partly because there's not as much student loan debt outstanding there, but also because some of the recent policy changes have some kind of built-in relief for those kind of lower income tier groups. But everything we've seen out of the retail so far is that when they talk to lower-end consumers, we just had a QVC this morning report and they said, yeah, everything, you know, they're medium to higher end and consumers doing well. It's the lower end consumers that's that are driving weakness. We've heard that pretty universally, I'd say, across retailers, you know, through, throughout this year, is that the, that's where they're seeing the challenge. That's where they're seeing that kind of downshifting behavior, the shift to a more, you know, in some ways more recessionary mindset. So that's kind of that balancing factor. In some ways, you know, the lower end consumer has seen gains. You, you have legislatively minimum wages coming up. I just we just saw uh, California, right, twenty dollar an hour minimum wage for anyone who works in a fast food restaurant starting in twenty twenty four. So you have these kind of pockets of low end strength coming through, but the behavior so far has been pretty weak from that income from those income groups. Higher end. Um, yeah, the tone has been, if you look at a name like Macy's, right, that has a, the Macy's stores and the Bloomingdale stores, Bloomingdale stores have generally outperformed those kind of mid-tier Macy's-focused stores, which speaks to kind of the strength of the of the higher-end consumer. I think where we have a little concern in kind of that one to two-year time range is that there's always a mix of aspirational customers that are in these higher-end stores, right? So you have the core, you know, wealthy customer who's has had pretty good net wealth effects, is, is doing okay side of a couple of pockets of layoffs, but should be able to spend. I think where we get a little concerned is that the people who are, I'd say, maybe shouldn't be spending in the high-end stores who have kind of stretched their way into their, you know, from middle-income customer groups, if they start to feel pressure, whether it's from a student loan, whether it's from, you know, a turn in some of the employment metrics, that's where we'd be a bit more concerned. Uh, and that's always the, that aspirational customer base is where we would be concerned. But so far, the, the higher end seems to be performing better, uh, I'd say, than, than the lower end stores. And, and that's the trend we've seen so far. Thanks, James. We've got another question from the audience about peak economic conditions kind of on the heels of this lower than expected non-farm payrolls print. I think from the strategy perspective, and this is certainly informed by a lot of the analysis from the consumer crew on this call, it seems like It'd be hard to imagine the 4.9% Q3 GDP print could be matched or even come close to looking forward. And so we are looking for a softening of economic data broadly, really consistent with kind of the more cautious messaging that we're hearing from these guys on the consumer side. So we are looking for growth to slow below potential in 2024, something that 
many had anticipated coming into this year and, and really many had anticipated recession, we've gotten above potential growth. And so I think peak economic conditions from a broad perspective are, are probably in the past. And that's kind of been our call uh, as we put out our preliminary 2024 outlook a couple of weeks ago. Turning to inflation, Jim, on the consumer product side, I think you've kind of given us an indication that you know good pricing was a pretty big driver of inflationary pressures over the past couple of years as we moved past or as you know kind of we came out of COVID. How are you thinking about the pushback on pricing for the consumer goods side and how that shapes the inflation picture in 2024? Food companies by and large, um, and I speak to food companies specifically because food inflation is so important for the consumer. Um, by and large, want to hold on to pricing as much as possible, but they want to have a balanced approach to both price and volume increases, and they're not there yet. They seem to be moving towards normalization, and as I said earlier, I expect that to come more into play in the fourth quarter. And a little bit, it's going to have to depend on the pressure that they might get from the retailers who want to emphasize private label. That's been a key driver of metrics in the past. So you know, the Walmarts and the Targets of the world. However, the grocers don't really like lower prices because deflationary pricing impacts their top line, but it can help them take market share and they've been willing to be lost leaders in, in categories in the past. So as we wrap up 2023, I think you continue to see deceleration in price increases from mid single digits, maybe down to uh, towards low single digits. And then looking out to 2023, 24, we wouldn't expect deflation necessarily, probably continued uh, disinflation, because as I said, it is good for the margin uh, to, uh, to, for food companies to, to continue to grow prices. And in some instances, they're continuing to call out cost inflation, although it's largely labor at this point because supply chain headwinds have worked themselves out. So for our outlook for next year would be further moderation in price increases and more of a balance between mix and volume growth. So, Jim, I'm going to follow up with you because we have a couple of questions related to GLP-1s. We're actually going to record a podcast next week with the healthcare and insurance and special sits team who cover Weight Watchers on GLP-1s from a more kind of healthcare access and impact standpoint, and then do a follow-up podcast with Jim and Miriam, who's our Euro Consumer Senior Analyst on the impact from GLP-1s on food and beverage. So Jim, let's front run that podcast. Any early thoughts on the potential impact from GLP-1 weight loss drugs? Are we expecting that it is the end of days for Hostess and the delicious snack food industry, or is this getting way overblown? Uh, no early reads in terms of showing up in results. It's too early. Management teams have downplayed the overall impact. And a couple of points to note that I'm sure we'll dive in to deeper next week are one, the cost of the treatment, two, the retention of people who start the treatment, whether they continue to do it, concerns around long-term side effects, et cetera. The industry is not static. There's an ability to adapt, but by and large, when asked the question, as many companies have been, they've said it's too early to tell they're monitoring it and no expectations from the management level of it, completely disrupting the industry uh, as may be indicated by some headlines in the media. All right. Okay, so can we will be. Chime in. Go ahead, James. For, for, yeah. I was just on the. I mean, I think one of the widely cited headlines is this 
stat from Walmart where they said, we, you know, Walmart has a pharmacy, so they know a specific customer base that's on the GLP-1 treatments. And then they sort of looked at their spending on food categories and they said they saw a slight decline in spending in those categories. But I think obviously the market is kind of running with that and saying, oh, it's, yeah, this is the end of food spending. Uh, probably, probably a stretch. I think there was a little bit of follow-up reporting was interesting that they said, I think customers who are on the GLPs actually in some outside of just food spent more than oddly or i guess they were they were spending in part uh, on other treatments to offset the side effects uh, like gastric side effects of glp1 so it seems like i think the market's probably overblown on this you know the end of spending related to glp1s at this point but we'll see it's definitely an interesting and very timely topic right now so We'll all be looking into it a bit more closely. So James, I'm going to stick with you on the retail side of things. We did see some kind of punchy retail sales data. What do you make of that data more broadly, especially when we consider some of the commentary from retailers and suppliers and the broader inflationary environment? Like, How are consumers still keeping up this robust pace of spending? Well, we need to see more kind of promotional. I feel like I'm getting more emails lately with discounts from retailers. What do you think? Yeah, I think I mean I think the the promotion question definitely we're we're headed back a bit towards you know the old days of promotion. Uh, there was that period, obviously, sort of 2021, where you know retailers had this kind of sob story of supply chain weakness and and saying, listen, if it's on the shelf today, you should buy it because it may not be there tomorrow. That's that's gone, right? We've gone through that. You know, the supply chains have, have tightened up and, and the availability is not an issue anymore. The retail spending strength has been surprising. I mean, some of that's been driven by elements like restaurant spending, which goes into retail sales. So if, if you look at the kind of individual categories, the categories where people are most concerned have been weak. So like consumer electronics spending has been a weak category and hit by some deflation as well as some unit weakness, like home furnishings, those kind of categories, we've seen weakness there. So it's kind of the other categories, you know, apparel as well has been fairly weak. It's kind of some of these other categories that are providing a bit of cover for that overall. So to explain why these retailers are speaking about weakness, but the retail sales numbers coming in a bit stronger. I think that's the factor there in terms of what's helping this Consumer spend. I mean, yeah, you know, I think the the employment situation remains the core element there. The, the job situation is still great. You're still getting some wage growth, and that's been supportive. And then there's always that question, which seems increasingly hard to identify, is whether there's still excess spending, excess savings rather, on the consumer balance sheet, and that you know it seems like there is still some, uh, and that's still supportive. And you know, I think there's been a little bit of a philosophy change, you know, from some consumers that at least is like, well, if I have it, I'm going to spend it. Um, you know, I've lived through a pandemic and this is my chance to shine, I guess, as, as a consumer, I'm not sure. So I think that there's a bit of that element that's still playing through. Turning to Jim and Dave on the services inflation side, that's certainly been fairly sticky. I think we're starting to see signs of that coming off. And from what I'm hearing so far in this call, you know, perhaps a little bit more caution in terms of guidance, but forward booking and, and some of these aggregate levels look pretty good. So how do you think about that in terms of demand pushing inflation on the services side going forward? Yeah, I can start on, on kind of the hotel side and what we're seeing. So on a year over year basis, we've already started to see some normalization in hotel rate growth really since early summer year over year rate growth has been pacing around two to 3% versus 2022 levels. So we expect this kind of normalization will continue into 2024, just given some of the resilience we're seeing on the leisure side. One thing I would call out in terms of midweek rates and how we think about that, like I said earlier, a lot of companies, a lot of hotel managers are expecting a recovery for the large corporate business traveler, as well as increased group and kind of convention business. So that should help provide 
you know, some support to pricing power for midweek stays at hotels. But again, that doesn't impact the consumer as much because the consumer typically travels on you know, the shoulder to weekend days, Thursdays through Sunday. So we do think that you know, there is some, some sustainability in terms of pricing power, but uh, more normalization going forward. And no let up uh, in the cruise market. In fact, price increases lagged the hotel market broadly during and since the pandemic. Hotels can more or less price inflation overnight. The cruise booking curve gets put in place a little bit further out and it takes time to get pricing through. But in fact, prior to the pandemic, relative value in cruise vacations was well below hotels and land-based alternatives. And that gap has widened because of the increase in hotel rates primarily and the slower rate of growth for cruises. So if you look prior to pandemic, we're higher uh, for the cruise industry on a pricing basis than we're pre-pandemic, but the expectation is for further growth in rates and yields in 2024 to further close that gap to land-based alternatives and the demand is there to support it. And we don't have our airlines analysts on the line, but I, I think leisure demand supporting rates for airlines is, is similar in a lot of ways when you look at capacity and, and demand for you know, higher ticketed fares. Awesome. So let's shift the conversation. We are kind of getting back to the top of the hour. Let's wind it down with some thoughts on M&A in the consumer space, because we have seen some moving pieces lately. We have the FTC requesting more info from Campbell Soup on its acquisition of Sovos Brands. We have a hotel deal with some pretty nosebleed high leverage points. There's a lot to keep track of overall. So Jim, let's stick with you kind of a high level view of recent M&A and where management teams are headed and what to watch in your sector. Yeah, there's been an increase in M&A interest. First, in terms of deals that have announced, we have two large deals with Campbell Soup and JM Smucker. Um, Smucker acquiring Hostess Brands for over $5 billion and Campbell's acquiring Sovos, maker of Rouse sauces and other products for just under $3 billion. I think interest in M&A has been prevalent since the end of the pandemic in certain assets. It's become a little bit more attractive for corporates over private equity buyers because of rates. And, and it does feel like maybe if rates were to come down a little bit more into 2024, we could see renewed interest. There's not as many large public assets out there that there were in the 2016-17 period. So we're not necessarily expecting uh, a huge wave of mega mergers that we saw in that period. But the deals that we've seen have been leveraging, taking metrics from sort of mid triple B range to the cusp of low triple B. So that's the leverage around three times up to around four and a half times or just below there. And there were other names interested in those deals besides the winners that got announced. So the, the interest is there and it's definitely higher than it was um, six months ago. Awesome. And then, Dave, how about M&A for your sectors? Yeah. So the big news recently in, in the hotel space is Choice Hotels attempted bear hug for Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. The combination would create one of the largest budget-focused hotel franchisers in the U.S. However, Wyndham's board of directors and their chairman has been very outspoken against the deal for a number of reasons, um, including antitrust issues, you know, potential organic growth prospect of, of choice, which they you know don't think very highly of, as well as excessive leverage effort after a pro forma deal. So right now we're kind of in this holding period between those two names. Basically, Wyndham told them 
to um, to kick rocks. And now choices, we'll see if they look to sweeten the pot or potentially pull off on the deal. But outside of that, M&A has, has been fairly muted within the, the casino space, partly due to the higher rate environment on the gaming side. You know, there's still a, a number of you know, there's a number of notable greenfield opportunities for for new casino builds, including the New York bidding process, which is starting to heat up and, and should come to a close in 2024, as well as Japan and the UAE. So we think the pipeline there of greenfield opportunities will be a high priority list on, on the capital allocation front. Also for hotels, there continues to be kind of this this gap in the bid versus ask spread on valuations that the sellers you know, looking for a growth outlook, whereas the buyer thinks a more challenging condition. So that has limited M&A and op- opportunities in the space. That said, we think companies that have stockpiled cash, uh, there could be some attractive opportunities over the next couple of years as CMBS maturities start to increase, leading potentially to force sellers, depending on um, you know where the in- interest rates stand. Great. And lastly, we'll go with James, which also has a question from the audience on Kroger-Albertson deal and whether that's going to close. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure on the retail side, Kroger-Albertson's is definitely kind of the, the highlight, most interesting M&A deal, which you know, generally kind of brick and mortar retail hasn't seen a lot of M&A. Uh, our view is that most, most retailers feel like they've got more than enough stores as they are, and, and they don't really want to go and merge two groups of stores together and create the kind of excess store situations. Kroger Albertsons is obviously the, 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 the bit of an exception there. And and in terms of, you know, uh, we, I guess we, we jointly wrote a piece looking at some of the FTC situations. And, and I think, you know, in terms of the FTC cracking down on deals and, and having a, a kind of a, a tightening leash on any transactions, uh, a merger in the grocery space, which has seen obviously a lot of inflation and a lot of pressure on the consumer probably ranks pretty high on one that they're going to try to avoid. I think there was a headline yesterday saying that there's going to be some word on the kind of next steps early, probably early next year from the FTC. They're they're in there still in their sort of data collection process, uh, returning some information and then going back and forth. Um, Probability of, I think I'm perhaps a little bit, I mean, a little bit more optimistic than the market that that this does eventually get past the finish line in some form. Potentially, you're going to see an increased demand for divestitures. And I think that's the, the major focus is, you know, can you satisfy the FTC that the divestitures of overlapping stores is is satisfactory? You've seen this uh, CNS gross wholesale as a potential buyer of assets. I think that might get pushed further, you know, for more stores to have to come out of the combined portfolio to get it done. But I, I haven't given up hope entirely that, that a deal gets done. So I, th- I feel like I'm a little bit more optimistic than, than the market on that. And then the other interesting deal, which we don't cover yet, but we're working on picking it up, is Tapestry, which came out to acquire Capri. So those are both kind of luxury apparel and accessory brands. And that's kind of a $10 billion deal. And we haven't seen too many of those in the U.S. market recently. So that there has been a little bit of a sign of life there on the M&A front, which is interesting. and also brings some potential new issue to those markets from both of those deals in a market that's really been kind of very dry on, on new issue for retail. We haven't really had... In my coverage universe, we haven't had new issues since June of this year, which is a long time to go without writing a new issue note. Not that I'm complaining, but it's uh, it's, it's been a dry spell. I, w- I was going to say, be careful what you wish there for yeah, there, exactly. James. <laughs> All right, so let's wind it down. Another speed round to close. Um, top picks in your sector for 2024 and why. Let's start with James, and then we'll go to Jim and Dave. Yeah, I think um, we're still looking at Portions of the retail space that are doing okay and, and seeing 
kind of some healthy demand. So I think home improvement still remains relatively robust between the two names, big names in the spaces, Home Depot and Lowe's. We like Lowe's for the incremental spread you pick up, you get relative to Home Depot. We still like Mattel in the space, which is a fairly recent crossover, done a nice job of kind of cleaning up the story there, deleveraging, getting the Barbie and, and, and Hot Wheels and those brands, you know, back on track with a couple, couple points of weakness, but generally it's a yieldier, spreadier name within the space. I think there's other names that are kind of getting interesting, but we're not quite there yet. So if we look at Walgreens, it's certainly one that's blown out a lot on the risk of downgrade to high yields. We think that there is a pretty good chance that that high yield downgrade does happen, but that potentially post downgrade, that could be an interesting entry point to the name. And then on the high yield side specifically, we're still hanging in there on Macy's as a name that we like. Um, has, as I talked earlier about inventory management, they've done a nice job on inventory management. I think that helps ride out some of the kind of the consumer challenges and yeah so i'd highlight those as, as a couple interesting ones awesome jim you want to go next sure uh, for investment grade consumer goods a couple names we'd like to highlight in the mid triple b space we still have a positive view on Kraft heinz it's shifted more firmly into mid triple b credit metrics it's an attractive way in our view to pick up spread what relative to some higher quality names like mondelez or general mills we think there's going to be opportunity to get involved in the names that have announced m a uh, as i discussed earlier campbell's and jm smucker um, smucker has come to market uh, with with their funding and the bond market portion for that deal, but we've been hesitant to get in. We just sort of want to see how the most recent period of results for the assets being acquired host this play out in the next week or so. We've heard some rumblings about volume weakness there, so it might be a more attractive uh, opportunity there. But we're constructive on the ability to reduce leverage. The time frame to get to the ultimate target might just take a little bit longer than management has portrayed, so we want to make sure investors are getting compensated there. Um, so. It's a name we're watching and could potentially get more involved in. Uh, there's some OTC healthcare names that we like. Haleon had a market update yesterday. They're a deleveraging name. There's some opportunities there to get paid more than some higher quality household personal care names like Procter & Gamble or Colgate. In the high yield space, um, in in the in the restaurant space, we're we're constructive on Restaurant Brands International. It's a secured uh, bond stack. They're in the market this morning. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, that there's been some softness in casual dining, but not showing up in the the fast food market, and there's still a, a goal of deleveraging a little bit in that story. So we're comfortable there. Of course, the biggest, most attractive opportunity in high yield for us remains in the cruise sector, where we favor exposure to Carnival Corp over Royal Caribbean, although we're positive on the sector broadly. Both those names we have identified as early rising star candidates, although it's going to take two to three years, respectively, for those names to to get there, and that's even with considerations of potential slowdown. We get asked a lot about slowdown concerns with those names in particular, but we think there can be softening in demand and without disrupting the recovery, particularly because liquidity is so strong and they've been proactive in terming out maturities over the next couple of years. So cruise and high yield is the most attractive one in our view. All right, Dave, cruise at home for us. Yeah, yeah, I'll go quick. So I have, I have two, um, person IG, Expedia, you know, Despite concerns around leisure demand, the company continues to have really impressive results. That was recently reflected in their print yesterday with record EBITDA levels. Management remains committed to deleveraging at, at roughly 2x gross leverage target. They're four ticks above that, so we expect to see continued deleveraging on the back of EBITDA growth as well as some potential small debt repayment. We continue to like their incremental spreads at Expedia Bonds versus Marriott's and, and Triple B Index. And then in high-yield gaming, we like Caesars Entertainment. They have 
a nice diversification of exposure with kind of a nice mix between Las Vegas and regional markets. Um, Las Vegas has really been the driver of growth as of late. Regional markets have been mostly resilient, but the you know one of the main reasons we like them is management's plans to allocate all their free cash flow for debt repayment in the near term. So we like kind of that extended deleveraging story as well as their digital business, which should continue to advance into profitable territory. Extended deleveraging story. Always want what credit investors want to hear. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you much to the consumer team for shipping in, especially during earnings season ahead of the holiday season. I thought that this was a super helpful conversation. If anyone has follow-up questions for any of us who presented today, please feel free to reach out to us directly. You can always find us using that Ask an Analyst function on the website. Good luck to everyone in November and enjoy Thanksgiving. That's it for today. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.